Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book in the study of religion that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I spoke with Stephen Engler, one of the co-editors along with Michael Stausberg of the Routledge Handbook of Research Methods in Religious Studies, which was published by Routledge in 2011. In almost every graduate program in religious studies, and many undergraduate majors, you'll find a course on theories and methods in the study of religion. Usually in these types of courses, you'll find lots of Freud, Marx, Durkheim, but there is generally very little direct training in research methods. As a discipline, there has been a general lack of interest in research methods as well, at least as witnessed by publications. Michael Stalsberg and Stephen Engler have ventured to fill this lacuna with the Routledge Handbook of Research Methods and Religious Studies. The handbook leads readers through issues in three categories, methodology, methods, and materials. Chapters were produced by an international group of scholars and cover a wide range of topics that will be useful for the anthropologist, sociologist, or historian of religions. The handbook also articulates the relationship between methods, data, and theory, and effective processes for employing the most beneficial research model. In our conversation, we discuss research design, grounded theory, the comparative study of religion, the phenomenological approach, discourse analysis, ethnography, redescription, as well as thoughts on the state of religious studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Engler. Thanks for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome to New Books in Religion. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Engler, one of the co-editors along with Michael Stausberg of the Routledge Handbook of Research Methods in the Study of Religion. Thanks for making some time to talk with us, Stephen. How are you doing today? It's a great pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on this uh, great resource you're providing, Christian. Yeah, thank you. Now, this really is a wonderful book, um, and as you note in the introduction, it, it's something that has been lacking for a long time. Um, so, so thank you for both of your efforts for, for producing this. Um, but before we kind of delve into uh, the, the content of this book, um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background on uh, how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps um, more concretely what you do in your own research, and perhaps uh, people that have been influential either in kind of your theoretical or methodological take on the study of religion. Yeah, I started in physics, then I switched switched into philosophy, but uh, I found that philosophy, because I was in a very analytical department, was missing a sense of the social and historical context for the arguments, and that was one of the things that led me to religious studies. In in hindsight, another thing that led me to an interest in religious studies was when I was 15 years old, I spent a a year in Brazil as an exchange student. And that uh, led me to experience another culture and more importantly, to come back home to Canada and to see it with fresh eyes. So that gave me a, a taste for understanding how people's 
values and attitudes reflect a lot more than they often think they do. So then I did the BA in philosophy, MA in philosophy, PhD in religious studies at Concordia in Montreal. I did work on early modern Europe, basically work in the theory of religion, looking at the secularization of charity. And then I got back into interest in Brazil, and now that's my main research area is religion in Brazil. Now, uh, perhaps you could give us a little background about your relationship with uh, Michael, how you guys connected in in various ways, because this isn't the only thing you guys have worked on together. Yeah, we've been working together since 2008. And, well, we knew each other from uh, mainly the AAR conference where we were in Nasser sessions and part of discussions about Nasser working groups and going to different AAR sessions. And when uh, Michael stepped on board as the European editor of religion, he invited me to join him as North American editor, and we took over the reins at the beginning of 2008. So we were editing and continue to edit that uh, very important uh, journal in the study of religion. And then Michael suggested the idea for this handbook on methods. And of course, I jumped at the chance to join him on it because it definitely is something that can add to the field and has been lacking in the field. And we're all, we, I contribute to other things he's working on and uh, we're always in touch working on different things. But the big thing we're working on now, we're working on a handbook of the study of religion, more general handbook with a very large number of chapters. And that's under contract with Oxford University Press. And uh, we'll be getting the first chapters for that in, in their first draft late this summer. That's great. Um, since you have so much experience editing, and specifically uh, with, with books too, not uh, only the the journal, um, can can you give us a little kind of insight into the the process of being a good editor? How how do we do it? What what kind of things have you learned along the way? What are some best practices for for listeners who might also be working on edited volumes? Well, my my biggest tip would be to work with someone as well organized and focused as uh, as Michael is. Because we bring different skills to the table. I find I've never edited a book on my own, and I find co-editing very useful because people do bring different skills to the table, and you can sort of try to pick up for each other when the vagaries of our academic and personal lives leaves you a bit short of time. You can lean on each other. But in terms of practical tips, the most important thing is having a very clear vision of what the book is. That involves both what its overall contribution is and especially how the individual chapters should ideally reflect that. And we err on the side of giving people overly specific instructions, really clear instructions on what the goals of the book are, what should be included in each chapter, because the more instructions, uh, the better. If you leave things a bit up to chance, you get people interpreting them in different ways. And in the end, a really good index is an essential tool for any edited book. Now, uh, could, could you give us a little background on, on how this project developed? Uh, you, you mentioned that Michael came up with this idea, um, but perhaps what were some of the kind of early conversations in, in kind of setting out this very clear design that you're, you're talking about? Well, with uh, 
the Rutledge Handbook and with the Oxford Handbook that we're working on now, there's a, it's almost like a, a year of discussions back and forth and drafts of possible chapters and sort of vision statements of where this could be headed and a lot of brainstorming about the ideal set of chapters and topics that should be included. And what we're doing at that phase is to try to go beyond the phase of sort of ad hoc grabbing people who might be available to get to the point where we have a, a fairly coherent vision, uh, a really complete vision of what should be included if everything you know, were made possible. In the end, you can't find everyone to write on all the chapters or you find out that you've sort of got a blind spot towards something that could be included. But we put a huge amount of work into brainstorming and preparation before we even send off a proposal to the publisher and we only contact authors after the publisher has expressed clear interest. Now, um, for, for this book, uh, structurally, you break it down into uh, methodology, method, and materials. Um, what what are the differences here? How, how did you kind of see the vision of this structurally and, and kind of working someone uh, through kind of uh, how people should go about studying religion? The distinction between methodology and methods is pretty straightforward and that methods are specific, you know, some more specific than others, but specific techniques for gathering and in part analyzing data. But you have to have more general issues in the in the background even before you get to that point. So methodology is more sort of the philosophy of methods, research design, those more general issues. The, we went back and forth over whether to include the section on materials because on the one hand, you can use a variety of the methods discussed in the rest of the book if, for example, you're dealing with internet sources. But in the end, we felt that it was a very useful thing to have in the book because there are some specificities of the way you approach your different sorts of materials that justified having that section. And we got good feedback on it, so we're happy we made that decision. And then for the particular chapters, um, can you can you give us any idea of what you, you did require since uh, you said you give them such a kind of clear vision? So it, structurally, it seems like they all have a kind of uh, summary of, of how particular methods can be applied. Um varying numbers of examples with the particular method. Um, all of them seem to have a kind of annotated, annotated bibliography and key concepts highlighted. So what, what exactly were you seeking to, through each chapter? Well, the features you listed, some of which we uh, made sure we added ourselves at the end, like related chapters and that. So we wanted a very consistent set of features with the summary, the annotated bibliography, in addition to the regular bibliography, a list of related chapters, a list of key terms. And that's to aid in the sort of pedagogical use and the use for people who are trying to sort of study more broadly and shop around looking at the different methods. We also insisted that people discuss examples that they discuss some of the strengths and weaknesses of the methods and that they discuss some of the sort of philosophical presuppositions of the method. So we sort of laid out those, our sense of what should be included in each chapter and suggested a few pa uh, potential subject heading for the chapters. Now, uh, in your introduction to the handbook, uh, one of the things you mention uh, as almost a catalyst or uh, why we need a book like this is uh, graduate education in religious studies. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
uh, how you perceive graduate studies and religious studies uh, occurring now. What is the role of teaching methods to graduate students? Do you feel like this has changed at all from when you went to graduate school or is, was the same kind of lack of attention uh, the same? Or? Well, talking to other people, uh, I, the, the obvious assumption is confirmed that different departments will provide different experiences for their students. And so I shouldn't generalize too much on the basis of my education. But I think it's fair to say that what I went through is relatively typical, which is to say there wasn't much focus on methods. There was a, a theory seminar, and that was focused on sort of classic theorists more than how to generate theory or how more recent uh, theoretical perspectives respect or reflect the, the state of the discipline at present. And there was very little to do with methodology. One exception was uh, a, a certain group of people who were working with uh, Frederick Bird at Concordia who were doing a lot of field work, and uh, they did put some time into getting their chops together on ethnographic approaches. But otherwise, the, most people sat down with their texts and interpreted their texts, and there was very little discussion of how one should do that, what distinguishes good work with texts and uh, work that is more, uh, not just superficial, but less reflective. Um, another thing you note in the introduction is you, you talk about kind of what seems to be a general lack of interest in research methods, at, le at least as we can witness from, from previous publications. Um, I, I'm wondering... Uh, while we continue to kind of challenge our understandings of theories and categories, we haven't really seriously explored methods. I'm, I'm wondering why you think this might be and, uh, you know, what the utility of, of kind of uh, examining and rethinking about our methods very consciously, uh, how that can affect our work. I think that the, the way we deal with theory is often – not very productive either and there's a connection because I think talking about methods and talking about theory in a more productive way involves a sort of dialectic there. So the lack of talk about methods is part of a problem in how we approach theory, but it's also a symptom of the fact that theory tends to be seen as sort of a cookie-cutter interpretive lens, which is applied after the fact to data, just as a way. First you get data, then you look at it through whatever theory you choose. And what's missing there is precisely that sort of dialectic moving back and forth between data and theory and method plays that interim goal or role. In terms of uh, why, why is it this case, there's a number of possible reasons. One is the interdisciplinarity of religious studies means that people with different focuses can draw on existing literature and methodology in other areas. So if you're doing fieldwork, there's lots of stuff on fieldwork methodology. It's not specific to the study of religion, etc., etc. But I think another reason why religious studies tends to be weak on discussions of method is because, not because it's difficult, but because it's presumed to be obvious. So even when it comes to dealing with texts, there are a variety of different approaches to dealing with texts, and we tend to just assume that you can look for a certain set of themes that you're interested in, and then you've got the material on the table, and then you just interpret it. And uh, a number of the chapters in this book talk about more heads-up ways to look at methods and methodology. Another reason why methodology, I think, is 
underexamined in the study of religion is the history of the study of religion is informed by, to some extent, Christian approaches to texts historically in the discipline, but also more generally just debates over the nature of religion that leave people often presupposing an approach by defining themselves over against, for example, theology, rather than thinking in the more proactive terms that the study of religion is a social scientific or is a humanistic discipline which involves a commitment to certain methods. Um, one of the things I want to note for listeners and, and commend you and Michael on is uh, the kind of wide range of, of global scholars uh, you have in this volume. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just uh, kind of add your comments, add your thoughts on, um, you know, if we, uh, in kind of the North American Academy, uh, when we neglect to look closely at what people are doing outside of North America in the study of religion, uh, what, what kind of things do you think we're missing and, and perhaps how can we better recognize or be attuned to to non-English scholarship uh, or, or European scholarship that's happening on the study of religion? Part of that's the fact that neither of us are American. So we, we have networks that are a bit outside the, the standard uh, American context. That is, on the other hand, we're both AAR members and attend the AAR most years. But it's also a very explicit choice we made to get as wide a possible set of scholars. And, of course, Michael brings in his extensive network of contacts in Europe. And we also looked more broadly afield, though it was more difficult to find authors outside Europe and North America. What do we lose when we stick to English language scholarship? All sorts of things. It's different scholarly traditions have different theoretical emphases and different methodological emphases, so we lose a sense of variety. And I think even more importantly, there's a certain parochialism to the North American scholarship of religion. I've got an uh, editorial coming out in the next issue of Religion, where I look at the issue of bibliometrics. And it's quite striking that if you look at the JAR, or Canada's main journal, SR, uh, uh, Studies in Religion, Sciences Religieuses, it's uh, almost the vast majority of the authors are from the respective country. If you look at most European journals, the numbers are very different. The authorship of the journals are much broader. So there's a, a sort of a turning in, both in terms of the subject matter, in terms of the traditional methodological approaches, and and you know, more exposure to other points of view just makes things better. And finally, the bottom line was we were looking for the best authors in each approach, and, and that led us to where we could find people who published work that was not just good work in religious studies, but that was very self-conscious in its use of specific methods. Another uh, section of, uh, within the introduction is uh, you kind of note this uh, idea that because religious studies is interdisciplinary and because we don't necessarily have a, a, a method of our own, we're always kind of borrowing and we have to use this kind of methodological pluralism. Uh, this might be one of the reasons uh, that people either consciously or not uh, fail to reflect on on methods. Um, but within this conversation, you talk about how religious studies is, is not that different from other disciplines uh, 
in, in the way we might imagine it. Can, so can you talk a little bit about how religious studies might be different from other disciplines and, and how it's similar to other disciplines uh, uh, in terms of methodology? Yeah, thanks for asking that. It forces me to clarify my somewhat cryptic point that religious studies, by seeing itself as the other of theology, neglects some opportunities. That sort of opposition and debates around the nature of religion have tended to get caught up, for example, in issues of reductionism or sui generis with generous religion, whether there is a specific object of the study of religion and whether there's a specific method of the study of religion. And those are very naive questions when you start comparing the study of religion to other fields. Why would anyone expect those to be the case? Once you consider religious studies an academic discipline among other academic disciplines and compare it, it is like the vast majority of other disciplines – interdisciplinary in the humanities and social sciences often and has a great internal variety of objects of study, of methods of study. And so the study of religion really tends to be caught up in a a lot of navel-gazing, in part sparked by this need to justify the nature of the discipline rather than just to get on with doing the work of studying religion. Uh, perhaps you could kind of let us uh, into uh, when we should be thinking about method and, and what determines what what method will be the most valuable for whatever data we're looking at. A number of different uh, conversations or, or you know paths can lead you to making those kind of decisions. On the one hand, if, if you've got a certain set of data you're looking at that immediately narrows down your sort of range of uh, approaches. So let's say you're looking at texts. Then you're going to ask, you know, what's the goal of studying those texts? And what, however you answer that question will also tend to push you towards certain other methods. So if you start with data, you can start asking a series of questions that tend to narrow down your methodological approach. I'm a fan of a more sort of a grounded approach where you choose a general set of data and start analyzing and see what emerges from it. And that will lead not only to the emergence of certain theoretical perspectives, but it will also suggest certain subsidiary methodological approaches. In general, it's useful to think in terms of not just using a method, but of the possibility of combining different methods, which gives you a sort of more robust support for whatever kind of findings you come up with. Another way to think about that question is to think about the place of teaching about method in graduate school. Now, if you think about uh, seminars, which are often called theory and method seminars, and they're even senior courses at the undergraduate level, if you look at the syllabi, it's all or almost all theory. There's very little on method. So if we imagine an ideal sort of theory and methods course, let's say a a one-year course where one term is theory and the other term is method, would we set that course up as one where you talk about theories and then you talk about methods and have the two terms of that course independent from each other? It would be better to imagine trying to show interactions where certain theories imply or respond to or rule out certain methods and where certain methods 
bring with them a certain commitment to certain approaches. So, for example, discourse analysis tends to focus on issues of power and ideologically, at least in its uh, sort of most important forms. So they have a certain sort of a method brings with it a certain sort of theory, the certain sort of theoretical approach brings with it that certain sort of methodological approach. So if, a, if graduate students were aware not just that there are these methods, that there are these theories, but that there's a constant interplay between the two, that grows as your sort of data set grows and is analyzed more, I think we'd be doing a greater service to educating scholars of religion. Now, the corollary to this is is data, right? And you, you mentioned, uh, you bring up Jay-Z Smith's famous statement, there is no data for religion. Um, and you kind of flip this in the introduction. Uh, but what, so what do we do about data? Um, where, where do we find it? Where do we look for it? Well, one thing you can do is just do what you always do and just be head, more heads up on the relationship between method and theory as you move forward. Another thing you can do is you know, take the lesson from not only Smith but also philosophy of science that data is always already theory-laden, even to the general point that you can't choose any data that is religious data unless you've already got a certain concept of what religion is that allows you to pick out that data as religious. So you're already caught up in this uh, circular relationship between theory and data. And what methodology does is it allows you to sort of focus that so that as you continue the analysis, it is it converges on something productive more effectively, more efficiently, and more defensibly. Now, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about uh, grounded theory, which is the, the chapter you also contributed to the volume um, how does grounded theory work? Uh, what are kind of the procedural steps we would do in this method? As a method, because grounded theory is both methodology because it has a certain view of the relationship between theory and data, and ultimately the, the heart of that view is that there is no sharp distinction between data and theory, that there's sort of a spectrum along which you try to move towards more general points. One way to think about it is concepts and categories are, on the one hand, theoretical, but on the other hand, they serve as data for larger analyses. But as a method, in practical terms, you first have to identify at least the direction for collecting a certain type of data. So let's uh, look at a case. I do uh, field work in Brazil, and I do a lot of interviews. So the recordings that I come home with and the notes I take are a set of data. What you do is you begin to code that data. And in coding, at first, you're working at a fairly descriptive level. You're not trying to abstract too much. And what you're basically doing is looking for the kind of categories, the kind of concepts that you're looking for, typologies of different phenomena. You're sort of brainstorming as if you're writing in the margins. And that's a technique I actually use sometimes, writing in the margins of a transcript. What kind of themes are coming up? What kind of relationships you you see there? And then you, you... Continue code and you begin to, once you see patterns emerge, you begin to put together higher level generalizations that certain themes are coming together. And then a key thing in grounded theory is you go back to the field and collect 
more data. But that data collection is now informed by the categories that are beginning to emerge from that analysis. So in granted theory, you don't ask all your interview subjects the same set of questions, because that would presuppose you knew what you were looking for, that you chose to always ask those questions. So your first set of interviews, you ask some questions, but then you go back to the field and do further interviews, and now you're asking more focused, more nuanced, perhaps entirely new questions, which are informed by your initial analysis. So you have this cyclical relationship between coding the data and general, drawing out more general concepts from the data and enlarging the data set, but enlarging it in a manner that's guided by the theoretical ideas that are beginning to emerge. And by theoretical, I mean more general categories, types, concepts, themes that are beginning to emerge. You sort of go around that circle, generating more abstract, more theoretical ideas that will interpret what you're doing until you read it to a point where you're basically not getting much new when you go back and get some new interviews and code them again. And that's how you sort of tell that you've reached a point where you can say you've got something worthwhile. Now, one of the uh, chapters that you included in the methodology section is a section on comparison, uh, which was uh, by your co-editor, Michael Strasberg. Um, now, the comparative study of religion, uh, this has played a very kind of formative role in the development of the field with people like Tyler and Fraser and Max Mueller and Durkheim. Uh, part, part of this chapter, and perhaps you can comment on this, is uh, what might be uh, problematic about a comparative method or a comparative research design. Um, but then also, can you, can you tell us, uh, is this a salvageable method? What, what might be the benefits of comparison uh, as far as methodology goes? The fact that it's in that first section on methodology rather than the second on methods is the first key point, as you, as you noted there. It's misleading to think of comparison as a method. It is a number of different things. In the first place, it's a basic presupposition of any sort of thinking. And more specifically, it is implicit in how we come up with any sort of second-order terms that we use to even get a study of religion off the ground. So there's no way not to do comparison. Even the concept of religion itself is the result of comparison comparative processes but then at a more specific level comparison is in a general sense sort of a research design in that you are pretty well committed to some form of comparison and so thinking more clearly about how you are comparing whether it's different cases you know if i'm interviewing different people i'm comparing their texts to each other if i'm uh, looking at uh, two different religions in a different different community, I'm doing comparisons. So how are comparisons present? It's certainly salvageable at a methodological level. It, there's lots of important writings on comparison. It needs to be done very self-consciously and in a way that is quite explicit in terms of what features are being compared. And again, uh, Jonathan Smith is a, an important resource in looking at those ideas, but uh, Michael also talks about other authors whose ideas on comparison are very useful. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think the, the aim should be uh, of a research uh, project using a com comparative uh, design? 
Well, for a field that often calls itself comparative religion, the fact is not many people actually do comparative work. <laughs> Part of it is because you really have to be well prepared to straddle uh, boundaries, whether you're comparing two different religions or two different historical periods. So at the broadest level, there just isn't that much comparative work being done, and most people don't have the time to prepare for it or the time to do it. So that, that it's not a flaw; it's just a sort of pragmatic limitation. But in general terms, it's a matter of being specific about how comparison is present in your work and what exactly it is that one is comparing. Often associated with. Uh comparative study of religion is this method of phenomenology. Um, could you give us uh, a sense of what, what the relationship between comparison and phenomenology is and, and, and perhaps why it has this kind of bad, uh, this bad name in the study of religion? Yeah, that's a fascinating topic. And, and, you notice that a lot of uh, the handbooks that have come out don't even talk about phenomenology that much. Some do, some don't. But uh, what has happened to phenomenology? One of the problems is that people use the word phenomenology in too general a way. For uh, for example, Mercier-Eliadi and Ninian Smart, they weren't doing phenomenology. They were doing certain things that uh, resembled phenomenology in a certain sense and coming up with typologies and bracketing out certain assumptions and, and trying to be empathetic. And so they were doing stuff that had a certain resonance with phenomenology. But the basic commitment to phenomenology is to describe subjective experience in a very organized and methodologically sound manner, and they weren't doing that. So a lot of people reject phenomenology that isn't, in fact, phenomenology. And as Ivan Strensky has argued, a lot of the stuff that is more explicitly phenomenological is not based in the philosophical tradition of Husserl and Heidegger and, and other scholars, but is based in sort of debates in... Uh, 19th century theology. So phenomenology has got a bad name in part because it's uh, people have rejected things that weren't phenomenology in the first place. Phenomenology remains a very valuable uh, and very effective method. You have to commit yourself to certain processes of description. James Speckard sets out a, a nice fourfold typology on that. First, you, you have to get your data on the table, then you reduce it, you sort of isolate the key themes through analysis, and then you redescribe it. And that act of redescription is the crucial thing that results in scholarship. But that redescription has to remain close to the experience. In a sense, there's a general lesson there for most methodological work in the study of religion, even the question you just asked about comparison, is that Part of the project of doing scholarly work in the study of religion is to da take data, which is usually in a sort of insider discourse, and somehow translate it to a, a second level of discourse in a way that remains fair to the insider viewpoints. And uh, a lot of the tricks of method 
are how to get from the one to the other without introducing too many distortions. So uh, one way to think about methodology is a, a set of sets, different sets of rules and procedures for moving from data to theory in a way that uh, doesn't introduce too many extraneous assumptions along the way. Now, another chapter in the in the methods section that you've given uh, several pages to is on discourse analysis, and you, you, you brought this up earlier, but um, perhaps you could give us a little clearer picture of what this is, and I know you've worked on this yourself a bunch, so uh, perhaps first, what, what is discourse, uh, and then how can we use discourse analysis uh, as an applicable method? It's incredibly complicated. There's a bunch of definitions. <laughs> but in, in one sense, discourse is just language at a level higher than words. So we're talking about language. We want to go beyond that and say discourse presumes a social constructionist viewpoint, viewpoint, and it focuses on what language does, how language accomplishes certain things. And at that point, some people do a very a fairly descriptive analysis, but I think the more interesting work, and that's a case that Tito Xiao makes very clearly in his chapter, is coming out of more critical discourse analysis, which is looking at the way discourse constructs identities and expresses relations of power. So then there's broad distinctions like, are you just going to analyze the sort of linguistic form, which is a more dis- uh, descriptive process, or try to get at a level of the, the meaning, which already forces you to sort of make interpretive judgments over how to make sense of the text you're looking at, and ask questions about how some dis- discourses become hegemonic. The, the bottom line is discourse uh, analysis is a very promising method. It's, I think, one of the most important ways that uh, scholars of religion can do what they generally do, which is to read texts and try to interpret them in a way that is a bit more structured. Because discourse analysis, the literature has a, a whole series of typologies of linguistic forms and the way different voices interact in texts, and that can give us a more structured approach to making sense of texts, rather than the differences between an approach where you look for bits of text that illustrate what you were already looking for. So you go through a text and you look for, for example, certain forms of participation in ritual. There you're filtering out of the text something that it already is a theme you've got in hand, where discourse analysis is going to take the text as a whole and analyze it as a whole and see what emerges from it. So in that sense, it's more promising because you have the possibility of getting a fuller sense of how text works, coming up with surprising theoretical findings or even substantive findings because you're not taking for granted what your focus is. And the the number of techniques available in discourse analysis can give you some pretty useful how-to steps in working through that process. But it's a lot of work, and it has certain weaknesses, as any method does. Yeah, what, what kind of limitations does discourse analysis have? Well, the big one, and Titus makes this uh, super clear, he has a nice discussion of it, is uh, it, you, it's all about interpretation. There's very little, if any, causal Leverage. You, you can't really explain anything by doing discourse analysis. One of the things that Titus also points out is that there's a distinction between analyzing the text and uh, analyzing the reception of the text. And that is 
discourse analysis often focuses on the former, but there is some work that starts to increasingly look at the latter, and that's a useful broader direction to go in. Now, uh, an- another section of the me- methods uh, section of the book is on history. Now, um, the historical methods in religious studies have been, have been used for a long time. Um, and in this chapter, uh, what do you feel like it brought in kind of clarifying how historical historical methods should be applied, or what role it might play in the future of religious studies? One of the great strengths of that chapter, I think, is it's a really good example in the book, in part because it's a longer chapter, where it works a specific example in detail. So you can really see the kind of questions, the kind of leverage, that questions about what is expressed and what is not expressed, and relationships between one part of the text and other parts of the text. Uh, Rupke works through that in a level of detail that's a good model. But I, I think... One of perhaps the most important take-home point for me in that chapter is that a critical historical perspective uh, diverges in two ways from a lot of work that's done in the study of religion. Some work in the study of religion is religionist in the sense that it tends to accept insider claims as authoritative. And I don't mean there's anything wrong with accepting insider claims. What I mean is there are different ways of supporting claims, of offering rationales for claims, and the historical critical method has a narrow and more methodologically sound list of these. So in the chapter I wrote recently for a book that Kevin Schilbrack's editing on pluralism, it's a handbook that's coming out, I argued that if you look at traditionalism, a sort of esoteric movement in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, at the key heart of that, the heart of that perspective is a claim that true knowledge is passed on independent of any historical process, but through initiation through enlightened masters into an ancient tradition. Well, there's simply no way to make sense of that from a historical critical method. So, there's a lot of debate between theology and religious studies and religionists and social scientific perspectives and insider and outsider. And those debates, I think, are usually not too helpful. But this methodological distinction between a set of methodological approaches and the historical critical method that allow you to analyze texts in an empirically responsible way, I think, spells that out in a way that avoids any of the hysterics and simply gets down to business. And a second important uh, distinction, a different approach within the study of religion, a lot of scholars take for granted a lot of the categories that uh, inform religion, like the unitary nature of religions like Christianity or Buddhism. So one of the things that the historical critical method does is it relativizes those categories as well. And that's uh, sort of a staple in the, the critical study of religion Uh, work that people like Aaron Hughes did with the concept of Abrahamic religions recently. But again, it does it in in the context of a specific methodological approach. So one example that uh, Rupke gives is he talks about uh, the relatively new field of Western esotericism as a field that doesn't accept the traditional categories of what is religion, what is Christianity, what is science, but rather makes 
a key part of the objects of study, the construction and the dialectic over those categories. So in, in many of the chapters uh, in the methods section, uh, you, you, you've offered a great service for individuals who work with people. And uh, there are several selections of methods for approaching kind of li lived realities. So there's a section on experiments, participant observation, interviewing, surveying, videography. Um, in, in religious studies more, more generally or, or generally speaking, uh, we've given priority to textual sources and perhaps visual or material sources more recently – um, but do you think uh, as a field and training graduate students, which you bring up as one of the reasons of producing this, um, are, we, are we successfully preparing students to, to work with people or uh, have we just been successful in attracting anthropologists and sociologists uh, to, to work with us? Or what, what's your kind of take on, uh, on, on working with people in uh, this, the field of religious studies? Part of the, the answer to that is that it's – what is religious studies? How do we find, define it? Because if you look at people who study religion, a lot of them are trained in sociology, trained in anthropology. So if you define the field in terms of its object, it, it, it's a pretty broad field. And a lot of those people are well-trained to do precisely that, to bring excellent qualitative research skills to bear. And there are lots of people doing great work, and there are lots of graduate schools when you can get a really good focus there. Though, again, that always depends a bit on who your uh, supervisor is. That said, within the, the discipline of religious studies, more narrowly defined, and, and that's something that uh, in an introductory essay for a special issue on crisis and creativity, looking at religious studies around the world, Michael and I, uh, the section mainly Michael, argued for a distinction between a field and a discipline. And a discipline isn't just defined in terms of epistemological issues or methodological issues, but also in terms of a certain culture, uh, certain criteria of excellence, certain social formations, what conferences you go to, what journals you publish in. And if you look at religious studies in that narrower disciplinary sense, I think it's fair to say there still is a lot of focus on texts and a lot of focus on historical phenomena and less focus on uh, lived religion, less focus on ethnographic approaches. There are lots of exceptions. I think things have definitely been shifting over the last few years, definitely. But there's still a bit of a bias in that uh, sense. We got together um, here in Alberta, where I work in uh, western province of Canada, and we had a get-together with... Uh, Pretty well all. I think only two were missing. All the people who teach religious studies in the province. There were a couple of dozen sitting around the table. And we went around the table and talked about what we do research on. And my colleague at Mount Royal and I were the only two who studied anything in the 20th century. Wow. Uh, That's it. So <laughs> that would have been on that list, wasn't at the table. But that, that, <laughs> well, then it would be three. <laughs> And we just we hired someone else uh, recently, uh, and Brian is a uh, Buddhist who studies contemporary monasticism, uh, scholar of Buddhism studies contemporary monasticism in China. So now we, now we have three in our department. Hmm. Would you do you think uh, within the discipline, I guess more narrowly, uh, we're having sufficient conversations between uh, people who do historical work and people who do contemporary work, uh, working with people and. 
can we learn from each other as far as methodological approaches, well, even if we use historical texts? Or I think one of the big weaknesses in the humanities is the, the sort of myth of the lone scholar out there discovering things on their own. I think we should all do a lot more talking, not just other people in the religious studies, but outside. And one of, one of the big sort of I do different things, but one of the projects that I'm involved in that's very productive is I work with a philosopher colleague, uh, Mark Gardner, who's a philosopher of language. And we look at the intersection between theories of religion and philosophy of language. And right now we're in discussions with a colleague in English and a historian at our institution. All of us are thinking about looking at the way cognitive and neurosciences have had an impact on our disciplines. I think those kind of conversations are extremely important, and I don't think we do them enough. In part because we're, we have you know, habits of working as scholars who've published things under one name. There's not as many co-authored pieces in the study of religion as in many other fields, but in part also because we're just too busy with everything from committee work to supervising students to keeping the family together. It's hard to find time for those conversations, but I found it very worthwhile. Hmm. Now, the final section of the book, you focus on materials, and you, you, have a, you include sections on auditory, internet, material culture, visual, visual culture, and spatial methods. Um, can, can you talk – it sounded like you uh, – there might have been some debate. If, should we include these sections? What might be the purpose? Uh, so what, uh, why include these? Uh, what, what do you think these chapters give us as far as informing our methods? Are they talking about new approaches? Do you think they're rethinking old paradigms? I think they bring two main things to the book, coming as they do at the end of the book. On the one hand, each of these types of materials, to some extent, involves different methods. So it's a way of sort of contextualizing some of the choices that are made about how you work with different methods. And it gives examples of how having a certain sort of material might lead you toward different methods. I think that's a very important thing to have in the book because that's when you read about the different methods each on their own that's a, and you ask the question yourself and it's a, it's a, a key question once you've got some kind of data or some kind of uh, theme you're interested in how do you choose a method and I think those final chapters sort of instantiate that and illustrate that in a number of ways but the second reason why they're really important is they're all more sort of recent uh, paradigms in the study of religion. So we, we wanted to give a sense that, that different types of materials sometimes call for more specific methods. And in addition, it flags sort of cutting edge work or, or points where there is innovation happening in the field. So it points forward to some of the discussions that are ongoing about relationships between data, method, and theories. Now, uh, you, you talked a little bit about kind of issues of getting people to actually write these chapters. Um, with this being wrapped up, do you feel like there was anything that uh, you know, wasn't included that you really wish there was, that perhaps an author didn't work out or couldn't find one? Was there anything you really wish that was included in this? No, ma- no major regrets. I mean, there were other things on our list and who knows, we may do a, a second edition someday. And uh, there was one chapter that didn't materialize, but that was for understandable reasons, and, and someone else stepped in at the, the last minute. Uh, we're, we're pretty happy with it. You can never 
have a, a complete set. And since then, we've both sort of run into different approaches that we weren't even aware of at the time. And, and But I think it, it's got a, a good broad coverage. And I think one of the key points that I'm hoping people get out of this book is not just that there is a wide variety of methods, but that even asking the question, what is the right method, opens the door to all sorts of questions that end up making our research better. Now, uh, kind of from your perspective of doing this very broad project, and it sounds like you're involved in, in many types of projects like this, uh, especially with the, the journal Religion. Um, fr- from that position, can you, can you give us a, uh, your thoughts on what directions do you think we could go in the study of religion? What perhaps haven't we been doing enough? What, what maybe happens too much? Uh, what's your kind of take on what's going on in religious studies? Well, there's lots of wonderful stuff going on, on as as pretty well everyone in the, the the field knows. I can make a couple of generalizations. I do think that the way people use theory is often superficial. It's seen as an interpretive lens applied after the fact to make sense of data which is already sort of pre-selected. And I don't think that's a productive use of theory. It often just results in sort of redescribing the material using vocabulary drawn from, let's say, habitus from Pierre Bourdieu. I mean, I, I, how many, I can't think of how many times I've heard people toss that word out in describing what they're studying, but that word doesn't make sense outside its theoretical concept. So either don't use the word or use the theory in a more responsible way, which leads you right back to a different mode of collecting and analyzing the data. So that's one thing. I think we're still weak on theory. So there's more need for, in a sense, meta theory and not just criticizing categories, but thinking about theory's relationship to methods, the relationship between the two and data. So we can learn a lot by sort of the philosophy of social sciences and the philosophy of science. Another thing is a lot of people are using these methods and there are a lot of, uh, you know, people doing really interesting field work and really great work with interviews. There are lots of models of people doing wonderful things out there. And I, I think it's important to ask those questions. What method is being used and not simply focus on the conclusions of things. And the more we sort of keep our eyes open for different methodological approaches, the more we begin to see that it is a very rich and responsible and mature field. It, there's a certain lethargy and uh, some bad habits in many cases, but there's lots of wonderful work being done. Well, Stephen, thank you. We've taken a lot of your time and we, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, before I let you go, though, could, you, and you've sprinkled this throughout the conversation, but uh, can you give us a, an idea of what kind of things you might have coming out? Uh, I don't know if you have a kind of major project you're working on in, in, in Brazil or other things that you want to let us know about. I'm trying to find time to get revisions on a monograph which does a grounded theoretical analysis, it ultimately stemming way back to my dissertation, but... Uh, it's worked through the, the grounded theory cycle a, a few more times, uh, and that's looking at charity in early modern England and looking at the way that's reconceptualized and what kind of sense of religion emerges from that analysis. And my work with Martin Gardner, which is at the boundary of theory of religion and philosophical semantics, continues. We're starting to get uh, a book is starting to take shape. 
and uh, the editing work with Michael, of course, and my research in Brazil continues. I just have a research assistant has just finished inputting data from a, a survey I distributed uh, a number of houses in the community where I do field work, which asks a wide range of questions on religious participation and religious boundary crossing, like what's your religion? Have you been to other religions? Which of the following popular religious practices have you engaged in? And questions about religious beliefs. So I'm really excited to get looking at the, the significance that uh, what emerges from that study once I start to analyze the, uh, once I get the spreadsheets tidied up a bit and start to actually crank the data out. Great. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing all that, and perhaps we can get you back back to talk to us again. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Christian. Thanks for asking. That was my conversation with Stephen Engler, one of the co-editors along with Michael Stausberg of the Routledge Handbook of Research Methods in Religious Studies, published by Routledge in 2011. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.